Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Galatians chapter 3. Some of you are probably wondering why, how in the world is Galatians fitting into the message of Christmas? Everything. It's right here in Galatians. Explains the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ. As the choir has sung for us so beautifully this morning, Christmas is the time that we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the hope of the world, the hope that Abraham had been promised and that prophets had foretold for centuries and that the world waited for and then finally he came. In our study of Galatians, we've talked about the promise made to Abraham and in contrast to the law given to Moses. Interestingly, as the New Testament opens, it begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Hold your place here in Galatians chapter 3 and turn over to Matthew's gospel chapter 1. Now, many of us tend to skip through the names at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. But friend, they are there for a reason. Matthew says, if you look there in chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now notice, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You remember God said to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was a, pro a prophecy of the coming of Christ. Before that, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God had prophesied that one would come who would crush the head of Satan and defeat evil. But it was centuries, millennia, before the angel uh, came and spoke to Mary. He told her about the child she was about to bear. And in Luke chapter 51, verses 54 and 55, Mary sang these words. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, the promise was a long time in coming in the 400 years before Christ was born. That's the period between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. No prophets were sent to the people let alone a Messiah. It looked like God had forgotten his promises. But finally, the promise was fulfilled. Now notice at the end of the genealogy there in Matthew, he speaks about the number of generations in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. That's 
two groups of seven generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, another 14 generations. That's two more groups of seven. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. That's two more, giving us six sevens of generations. And that makes Jesus the beginning of the seventh seven of generations um, in uh, this line of genealogy. You say, well, Rick, what difference does that make? In the Bible, the number seven symbol is symbolic of perfection and also rest. The Bible tells us in Genesis that after God had created the world, he looked at it, it was good, it was perfect, and on the seventh day, God rested. In Leviticus chapter 25, we read about the year of Jubilee, the last year of the seventh period of seven years, the 49th year. It was to be a time of Jubilee. All slaves were to be free. All debts were to be forgiven. All the land and all the people were to have rest from their toil and their burdens. The seventh seven, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, was a foretaste of the final rest that we will have one day when God renews this earth and creates new heavens and new earth. So focusing on these seven generations... Matthew is proclaiming here in this genealogy, he is proclaiming the rest that awaits believers at the end time when Christ comes back and this world will be done away with and Christ will create new heavens and new earth and we will experience the ultimate rest of God when there is nothing left for us to do except to worship God for all eternity. Friend, that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is a time to celebrate the advent of Christ who through his finished work on the cross provides rest for our souls today and one day will provide the ultimate rest for us when we enter into glory. This news should fill our hearts with such love and such worship as we joyfully sing joy to the world the Lord has come. Well, what effect did the advent of Christ have? Um, if you continue uh, the, our discussion of works of the law as opposed uh, to faith in the promises of God here in uh, Galatians chapter 3. Turn back now to Galatians chapter 3. Paul is contrasting in uh, this chapter, chapter 3, the effect of the two approaches of the law and the promise on people. And we've come to verse 23 of chapter 3. Before conversion, a person is under the law and suffers the bondage that that relationship brings. But after conversion, a person is in Christ and enjoys the freedom that relationship brings. 
So here's what I want you to take from the message this morning, and that is by the grace of God, with the advent of Christ, people can now come out from under the curse of the law and be justified through faith. Paul points out the believer's status both before conversion and after conversion. First, there is before conversion imprisonment before Christ. Look what he says in verses 23 and 24. Now therefore, now before faith came, that is before Christ came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. In these two verses, we have two pictures which clearly illustrate the purpose of the law given to Moses. First, the law shackles us. Look again what Paul says. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Before Christ came, man was held captive. That word means to be kept in custody, to be imprisoned, to be shackled or held in bondage. The law shackles man to sin. He's in prison. He's unable to go free. Well, how does the law imprison us? At least uh, in three ways we can see how it does so. First of all, the law reveals the violation that we have committed. You see, the law tells us to do something or not to do something, but then we disobey. And the failure is clearly spelled out. We don't need somebody to remind us. We know what the law of God says. And as soon as we break the law, as soon as we violate the law, we are reminded of our wrong. It's kind of like driving down the road and you're going 75 and the speed limit sign says 65. That speed limit sign is there to reveal to you that you've just violated the law. That's what the law does. It reveals how we have violated um, God's command. Secondly, the law condemns us. As soon as a person violates the law, the law condemns them. It convicts our conscience. Guilt and shame take over. We are troubled in spirit. And then thirdly, the law has no power to save from punishment. See, that's the whole point. The law reveals our wrong. It reveals where we violated the command of God. It condemns us. It causes us to feel guilty and ashamed, but that's about all the law can do. It then um, is uh, powerless to do anything to help us. We, we need to be freed from the curse of the law, but the law cannot do that. So our only hope as the choir is sung for us, Christmas is about the hope that the world needs, and that hope is in Jesus Christ. We need someone with the power to release us, to free us from the punishment of the law. The good news is Christ came at Christmas to set us free from the law. A second picture of the law is not only does the law shackle us, 
But a second picture is the law is a guardian. The law supervises us. Look in verse 24. Paul says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, the law was a guardian for man to help lead him to Christ. In that day, in the day of the New Testament world, a guardian or a pedagogos, which is the word in Greek, was a slave employed by Greek and Roman families. The duty of this guardian was to supervise young boys in behalf of their parents. A transliteration of the Greek word is our word pedagogue, which means a child conductor or supervisor. This person, this guardian, would take the young child to school, drop them off, and at the end of the day would return and take the child home. There, the guardian made sure that the child studied his lessons and also trained them to obey. But the role of the guardian was not permanent. It was only temporary. When the child reached maturity, the guardian's job was done. Now, the guardian and the child might remain on friendly terms. They might um, uh, <clears throat> remain close. But the guardian no longer had any role in the child's life. Having completed his assignment, he had no more authority, no more control over the now mature young man. And the young man had no more responsibility to be directly under the guardian. Friend, that was the role of and the purpose of the law of God. God, our Heavenly Father, divinely appointed the law, just like a Roman parent would appoint a slave to be the guardian over his child. God, our Father, appointed the law to be our guardian, to lead us to Christ. The law does this by showing us how spiritually immature we are and unable to secure righteousness on our own. So we must look to Christ for spiritual maturity and the righteousness that we need to be justified or accepted by God. But after a person comes to Christ through faith, there is no longer any need for the law to guide us and control us. With its external ceremonies and rituals, um, we don't need those things to guide and direct our life or to serve as a disciplinarian over us because Christ himself brings us face to face with God. So the law, listen, in a ceremonial sense, that is related to its rituals and ceremonies, which points us to Christ, there is, that is done away with, the ceremonial aspect of the law. But listen, just like with the guardian and that young child, the guardian didn't just walk away. The guardian was no longer uh, unavailable to that young person who now had matured. He was there. He could counsel that young child if, he had been, if there had been a relationship there. That, that guardian was still there to help him and to guide him whenever he could. The law in a moral sense is still the friend to the believer. 
we need the law in a moral sense to help us to live the life that God has called us to live. So the law, in one sense, shackles us. Secondly, the law supervises us. That's what we had before conversion. We were imprisoned by the law. But look in the second place. After conversion, we are incorporated into Christ. With the coming of Christ, Israel moved out of childhood into adulthood. That long period of preparation was over. And Paul says, look in verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So with Christ coming, everything changes. Jews who place their faith in Christ, their Messiah, come out from under the curse of the law. And now by the grace of God, they and we can become sons of God through faith. Paul points out two truths with regard to the believers being incorporated into Christ. First, we see the believer's identity. Paul shows two aspects of our new identity in Christ. First of all, he says we are all adoptive children. Look in the latter part of verse 25, reading through verse 27. He says, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Friend, God's only spiritual children are those who are in Christ Jesus through faith. Apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, all human beings are enemies of God. Can I say that again? Apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, all human beings are enemies of God. We read that in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Chil they're children of the devil, according to Jesus in John 8, verse 44. No one belongs to the Father who does not belong to the Son. God has no children who are not identified by faith through his Son, Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. John wrote in John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, and, and then having dealt indwelt the believer in verse 16, it says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, the first thing God gives the believer is himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit in turn assures us that we belong to God. Paul continues in Galatians 3.27. Look what it says there in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now he's not saying this 
because he believes the ceremony of water baptism has saving significance or somehow unites us to Christ. Instead, baptism refers to spiritual identification with an immersion into the life of Christ. It is this immersing, immersing into the person and the work of Christ that Paul explains in Romans chapter 6. Take your Bible, turn back uh, to Romans chapter 6. Look what Paul says there in verses 3 and 5. It's up there on the screen if you don't want to turn back. Look, he says here, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friend, this is a great mystery that the human mind cannot fathom. The person who places his or her trust in Jesus Christ is crucified, buried, and resurrected with his Savior. Baptized in to Christ Faith appropriates that union and bab- that, that baptism symbolizes. So when we put our faith in Christ, it's as if we have died with Christ and we have been resurrected with Christ and we now live with Christ. Earlier, Paul had said back in chapter 2, verse 20 of Galatians, he said, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friend, the simple definition of a Christian is a person who has put on Christ. In other words, they have been clothed with Christ. That is the heart of Christianity. We are God's adoptive children by spiritual birth through faith in Christ. Now, a second aspect of the believer's new identity is we are all one in Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 28. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul focused here on the distinctions of his society, the society in which Paul lived. The essence of those distinctions was the idea that some people, namely Jews, free men, And males in general were better than or more valuable than the uh, uh, other people in society. More significant than others in society. But what Paul wants us to understand, not only have we been adopted into God's family, all who believe in Christ, but the gospel destroys all. All such proud thinking that one group or one class of people is better off than others. The person who becomes one in Christ also becomes one with every other believer. 
Friend, there are no distinctions among those who belong to Christ. In spiritual matters, there is to be no racial, no social, or sexual discrimination. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. It is not that these distinctions are erased in Christ. They're still Jew and Greek. They're still male and female. The point is that these distinctions are subordinated to who we are in Christ. Christ is now the decisive thing about us. Not that we're Jewish or not that we're Gentile, not that we're black or not that we're white, not that we're slave or free or rich or poor, Republican or Democrat, male or female. Paul says there are no distinctions among the people of God. The ground at the foot of the cross is equal and we all stand equal before God. Can I just say this morning, if the world would listen to us, Jesus Christ is the answer to all the prejudice, bitterness, hatred, oppression, and inequalities of this world. I can promise you that the people out there that are crying racism and who are practicing racism, I can promise you that many of those people do not know Jesus Christ. If you are a true follower of Jesus Christ... You are blind to what a person's gender is, to what their color is, to what their cultural background is. Paul says we are one in Christ. Now let me add, because this is being brought up today in the church in many circles. While we are all equal, and the Bible says very clearly that we are, God, there are certain assigned roles that God has given to us. We cannot twist Scripture to justify breaking the teaching, the clear teaching of Scripture in other portions of God's Word just because we, we uh, believe one way and society tells us something. You have to take Scripture in its entirety. So while we, were all, we are all equal, we still are given certain roles that complement one another. But Paul's basic point is, if you're distinguishing yourself from other believers for any reason and thinking that your class or your color or your group is better off than any other, Paul says, you better rethink about the sincerity of your own faith. Paul says we are all equal in God's eyes. So that's the first thing. Um, the, we, uh, the believers, in, uh, we are all it one in Christ. That's the second thing. Man. We, are, we are all members of God's family and we are all one in Christ. That's our new identity. But then I want you to see, lastly, the believer's inheritance. Look at verse 29. Paul ends this chapter by telling us that we not only take on a new identity in Christ, we also stand in line to share in the inheritance with Christ. 
by being joined to him, we become co-heirs with him. He says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now remember the promise made to Abraham of God's blessing, of being accepted by God and given the privilege of living in the land of Canaan, which was the type and symbol of the new heavens and the new earth. His point is that Jesus Christ is the heir of Abraham. So if a person is in Christ, if a person has been given this new identity, he now has a promised inheritance. She or she inherits the promise, the same promise made to Abraham. We inherit the promise of God's acceptance of righteousness and of living forever in the new heaven and the new earth as a child of God. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Friend, the promise made to Abraham and his offspring because of Christmas is now good for all who come to Christ through faith. That is the message of Christmas. The promise made to Abraham has been fulfilled, and this promise has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never experienced this promise, friend, listen to me. The Bible says if you remain in your sins, you are still under the curse of the law. And what is the curse of the law? For the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. But the gift of God is salvation in Jesus Christ and eternal life in heaven. Where do you stand this morning? Under the law or under the promise of God? Under the law, life is lived apart from Christ. Under the promise, because of Christmas and the coming of Christ, we have now the opportunity, the privilege, the honor of living in Christ and being free from the curse of the law and promised the final rest that awaits us in heaven. When all the redeemed of God shall stand before the throne of God and sing his praises forever and ever and ever, only because Jesus came at Christmas so that we might have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this season of the year. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the advent of Christ. In fulfillment of your promise to Abraham those many, many years ago. And God, I thank you that the same promise made to Abraham that was fulfilled in Christ is ours as well when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. God, I pray that you will speak to every heart here today. And Lord, that we would look at our own life and see 
where it is we stand today under the law and its condemnation and its punishment or under the promise of Abraham in Christ free and with hope and assurance that one day Jesus is coming back and when this life is over we will all stand together around your throne giving praise to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for it's in his holy name we pray